Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project by me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me this week as we encounter one of the earliest Christian martyrs, a man whose death offers an answer to an ancient philosophical question. Name, Antipas. Life, died around 92 AD. Status, Saint. Feast day, April 11th. Today's saint is Antipas of Pergamon. We don't know when Antipas was born, but it was early enough that he could have known people who knew Jesus Christ. It's been suggested, in fact, that he may have been brought to Christianity and mentored by St. John the Apostle. Antipas lived in the Greek city of Pergamon, near contemporary Bergama in Turkey. At the time, Pergamon was a flourishing city in the Roman Empire. The city had benefited from Alexander the Great's conquests, which had the happy side effect of spreading Greek culture, philosophy, art, and even the Greek language across much of the known world. As a result, there was suddenly much more room for culture, and philosophy entered the Hellenistic period. Greek-speaking philosophers from all over Europe flocked to Athens, the center of Greek culture. Even faraway Pergamon produced one of the great leaders of the skeptic school of philosophy. Then, about a century before the birth of Antipas, Athens took the wrong side in a local conflict, and the Romans burned much of the city down. Hellenistic culture flowed outward pooling all over the empire in Greek cities, like Pergamon. Pergamon was not just a cultural center. It was also a religious center, built around a high hill dotted with temples of the gods. In addition to the usual Greek and Roman gods, and of course, the temple for the emperor's divine spirit, Pergamon had temples for cults from the east. One of these, the cult of the mother goddess Cybele, had caused a scandal when it came to Rome about a century earlier. Conservative Romans had been disgusted at the rites performed by the cult's cross-dressing eunuch priests. Perhaps religion was in the air in Pergamon, for even some of the philosophers in Pergamon became mystical. A few centuries later, Pergamon would become known for a variant of Neoplatonism, which emphasized the occult practice of theurgy. It often happened that philosophy in the Hellenistic period blurred the lines that we would draw between religion and philosophy. The reason was that many philosophers were searching for a complete way of life, a way to live and die well. They were unsatisfied with the teachings of traditional religion, especially on questions like suffering. Disease, malice, error, or just bad luck can bring suffering into the lives of the best prepared people. Is there anything we can do to make ourselves more secure against such twists of fate? Can philosophy help us to live? or think, or perhaps condition our minds in a way that will allow us to avoid suffering. The example of Socrates, the great father of philosophy, suggested that it might. 
When Socrates was condemned to die by the city of Athens, he went to his death cheerful and undisturbed, certain that a virtuous man could not be harmed in life or in death. So between the philosophers and the priests, Pergamon had plenty of ideas about living well. The Christians of Pergamon offered another answer, and when Antipas eventually became bishop of Pergamon, he would have been the chief representative of that new way of thinking. Of course, he was just one religious leader among many, and a minor one at that. Our source for Antipas' martyrdom is the New Testament itself. He is mentioned in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, in the context of the church that he led. Quote, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. As so often with the book of Revelation, the passage is difficult to interpret. Does the mention of the seat of Satan refer to the pagan temples of Pergamon, to problems in the local church, or to something else entirely? Certainly as you read on in Revelation, you find out that there were problems in the church. The church in Pergamon was struggling with the old Christian temptation of eating food sacrificed to idols. Food would often be consecrated to an idol and then consumed in a communal feast, some hungry Christians were tempted to join in. Then there was the issue of sex. A group of early Christians had gone rogue and started to preach free love, holding orgies as part of worship. The early church, including the church in Pergamon, struggled to contain this heresy. These things may well have been headaches for Antipas in his role as bishop. Somehow Antipas's work brought him to the attention of the local authorities. We don't know how that happened. At this time, the Roman state wasn't really looking for Christians, but when a Christian turned up, he was often executed. Many things about Christians rubbed the Roman authorities the wrong way. Christians wouldn't sacrifice to the emperor. To pagan Romans, the pinch of incense seemed like such a small request that they suspected something sinister lay behind the Christian refusal. Perhaps they were planning revolution. Weren't Christians always plotting about bringing about a kingdom of God? A few decades after the death of Antipas, the Christian philosopher, St. Justin Martyr, was still trying to get pagan Romans to understand the basics of what Christians wanted. Quote, When you hear that we look forward to a kingdom, you rashly assume that we speak of a human kingdom, whereas we mean a kingdom which is with God. This becomes evident when, being questioned, we openly profess to be Christians, although we know well that for such a profession of faith, the punishment is death. If we expected a human kingdom, we would deny that we are Christians, that we might not be put to death, and we would try to hide from you, that we might attain what we expect. But because we do not place our hope in the present, we do not mind when men murder us, since death is inevitable anyhow. One legend about Antipas has it that he was put on trial because pagan priests began to dream that Antipas' new faith was driving their gods out of Pergamon. Antipas is supposed to have replied, not very diplomatically, that if the gods couldn't hold on to their city without human help, perhaps they weren't worthy of worship. Another legend, probably derived from a misreading of Antipas's name, which can be read as anti against pass all, has it 
that a kindly but confused pagan tried to explain to Antipas that everyone knew that there was nothing wrong with making a small sacrifice to another god. Antipas disagreed. Then the world is against you, Antipas, said the pagan. Then Antipas is against the world, was the reply. Even if Antipas didn't say these things, they represent the uncompromising spirit of an early Christian martyr. Diplomacy would not help much, and Antipas probably knew from the beginning of the proceedings that he would be condemned to die. But I suspect that he made a philosophical case to those trying him, and that his case showed them how Christianity offered an answer to problems like the problem of suffering. The reason I think this is the way Antipas was condemned to die. He seems to have been condemned by someone with an interest in that philosophical question. Hellenistic philosophy was supposed to show us how to be happy, not in the sense of a momentary emotion, but in the sense of living a good life. Suffering seems to be in conflict with happiness. Can we stay happy in a world where we can be forced to suffer? It should be said that sometimes suffering has value. A man who suffers in the gym gains by growing stronger. A woman who suffers in childbirth gains a child. But what if suffering has no good consequences? When they tried to formulate the problem of suffering, the Hellenistic philosophers did what philosophers do best. They pushed the problem to its logical extreme. What if you were tortured in a very horrible, humiliating way, and then immediately afterward you die? Is there any philosophical way to cope with suffering in this case? If we were formulating this worst-case scenario today, we'd maybe think of a torture like waterboarding or perhaps the fabled medieval Iron Maiden. In the ancient world, the proverbial example of a torture device was the brazen bull. Even the Romans weren't sure where the idea had come from. Supposedly, it started with a Greek tyrant in Sicily in the 6th century BC. Someone built him a life-sized, hollow brass bull. On one side of the bull was a door so that a person could be trapped inside. Then the torturers lit a fire under the bull. The added cruelty was a system of pipes installed in the bull's head that would turn the screams or curses of the dying man into the sound of a bull bellowing, so that his suffering would provide entertainment to his executioners. The tyrant was fascinated and disgusted, and in one version of the story he threw the inventor in as the bull's first victim. The brazen bull was the perfect way to put the philosophical question, so philosophers asked whether a wise man can be happy even in the brazen bull. Eventually, that way of putting the question became a philosophical cliché that everyone understood. The two most popular Hellenistic schools were the Stoics and the Epicureans. Both of them proposed ways in which the wise man could be happy in the brazen bull by avoiding the suffering he was undergoing. The Stoics said that the ideal Stoic philosopher would recognize that his death, like all events, was predetermined, and he learned to accept those elements of fate he could not change. The wise man saw that only his own judgments were under his control. The Stoics liked to compare man's lot to a tiny puppy tied to a cart pulled by a big strong draft horse. When the cart moves, you can be certain that the puppy is coming along. The only choice for the puppy is whether he will go along happily, or whether he will be dragged along by his neck. The wise puppy recognizes that his movement is inevitable, and the wise man recognizes that, even in the brazen bull, he is where he must be. He recognizes, moreover, 
that the fated order of the world is good. Even though he would rather not be in a brazen bull, the wise man retains his happiness because he accepts that his suffering is part of the good order of the world. The Epicureans, by contrast, had no problem raging against the order of the world. They argued that the wise man cultivated constant undisturbedness of soul, by which they meant the absence of pain. The wise man did this by searching for pleasures to offset pains, living a modest life among friends. As he went, he was stocking his mind with happy memories to which he could return in cases of suffering. The wise man knew that intense pain does not last long while long-lasting pain is not intense. As he was dying in the brazen bull, he would force his trained mind back to pleasant memories of his life and dwell on them, and that would ensure that he would remain happy until the end. The Stoics and Epicureans were not foolish men, and I hope these short summaries don't make their views sound silly. I have more to say on this topic if you're interested in chapter 2 of my book, How to Be a Philosopher. I think that these are methods that should be taken seriously, but I don't find them satisfying. I would find it difficult to fall back on Stoicism or Epicureanism if I had to face the brazen bull. The brazen bull, as you've probably guessed, is precisely how Antipas was condemned to die. He would be a martyr, a word which comes from the Greek word for witness. Antipas would be a witness to the Christian answer to the problem of suffering. When Antipas said that Christianity prescribed a new way of life, I think someone gave him the chance to prove it by facing the old philosopher's test case. And that is exactly what he did. Antipas is a manly saint because of his defense of the faith in deed and, I suspect, in articulate and logical word. And we know that Antipas was successful in this defense, since the New Testament describes him as a true martyr. Certainly Tertullian, writing about 75 years later, saw things in such philosophical terms. The great philosopher Zeno of Elea had said that philosophy teaches contempt for death. And yet, Tertullian pointed out to his pagan readers, it was Christians, and not pagans, who were living up to these philosophical ideals. But why? What was the secret of the Christian answer to the problem of suffering? We've seen one part of it already in Justin Martyr, but Tertullian puts it even more clearly at the end of his Apology. It isn't that Christians like to suffer, it's that we think that suffering leads to something better. Quote, We are, certainly, willing to suffer, but it is in the same way as a soldier desires war. No one endures war willingly, since alarm and risk are involved in it. The battle, nevertheless, is carried on with every nerve, and he who complains of it yet rejoices in it when victorious, because he is acquiring glory and spoil. It is our battle to be summoned to your tribunals, there to contend for the truth at the risk of our lives. It is our victory, too, in that we obtain that for which we contend. This victory gains for us both the glory of pleasing God and the spoil of eternal life. Tertullian points out that the belief in a just afterlife with God changes the time scale. Unlike the Stoics and the Epicureans, Christians believe in an afterlife in which martyrs return to what the wonderful Catholic poet Anne Porter called that lost native country. This means their suffering can be valuable as an instrument, like the suffering of exercise or childbirth. I suspect, though, that there is a second way in which suffering has value. 
We might say that suffering comes from a mismatch between our will and the world. We want to be full, but there is not enough food. We suffer. We want to do great things or be admired for beauty or accumulate wealth and power, but the world resists our attempt to change it. So we suffer. But in the story of St. Paul the Simple, we saw how St. Anthony trained his student Paul in pointless tasks of obedience, because in such suffering he was learning to align his will with God's will and imitating Christ, who subordinates his will to the will of the Father. I think that's what Thomas Akempis means in The Imitation of Christ, written many centuries later. Quote, the whole life of Christ was a cross and a martyrdom. And do you seek rest and enjoyment for yourself? You deceive yourself. You are mistaken if you seek anything but to suffer. For this mortal life is full of miseries and marked with crosses on all sides. Indeed, the more spiritual progress a person makes, so much heavier will he frequently find the cross, because as his love increases, the pain of his exile also increases. The Christian answer to the problem of suffering is not just to point to rewards in heaven. It is also to embrace suffering as the imitation of Christ. Such things are easier to say than to do. It's hard to embrace suffering even in small quantities not to mention the suffering of martyrdom. That's why it is important to recall the stories of men who did face it in word and deed, men like St. Antipas. The early church watched, and it strengthened their resolve. Tertullian's defense of Christianity summed up that challenge. Crucify, torture, condemn, crush us. Yet no cruelty of yours, though each were to exceed the last in its exquisite refinement, profits you in the least. We spring up in greater numbers as often as we are mown down by you. The blood of the Christians is a source of new life.